Well met, friends. I'm Jude Vays. And I'm Steph Midlock. Welcome to Atherbeth, a podcast exploring the fantastic fandom of Tolkien's Legendarium. Uh, we definitely have a corrections cul-de-sac this week from myself. Um, I think in episode 12, when we were talking about Tolkien's 1916 poem about crossing the English Channel, um, I called it the Lonely Island instead of the Lonely Isle, which is correct. Um, oops, the last time I checked, Tolkien was not a member of the comedy trio, The Lonely Island. Uh, so my apologies on that one. That would be... They should do a, a song about Tolkien, though. That would be pretty good. Somebody call Andy Samberg immediately, give him my <laughs> phone number, and then also tell him to do that. <laughs> so this month, we have a really cool episode. Uh, this is our first interview episode. We're interviewing Don M. Walls Thuma, yeah, who recently published a fascinating paper on a survey she did in 2015 on the Tolkien fanfiction community. Um, for those of you that are not a part of fandom in general, fan fiction is when fans take it upon themselves to write in the fictional world of a given author. They write often transformative or reparative stories where they take on subjects in the fandom that they want to do something more interesting with, pairing up characters romantically or fixing things they don't like about the stories, or sometimes they just want to take a character that they like and do something interesting with it or a storyline that they like. It's a pretty integral part of modern fandom. And for Tolkien fic, as it's referred to uh, in the Tolkien fan, uh, fan fiction community, it's uh, been around for ages, apparently. So uh, this survey was super interesting uh, to me, and we really wanted to talk to Dawn about uh, this fascinating survey uh, that she has done. Yeah, I'm really excited to learn more about this topic um, and to hear a little bit about the Tolkien fic community as a whole. We've got many paths to tread, so let's begin. Today we have the pleasure of talking to Don M. Walls Thuma, known widely on the internet as Don Feligan. Don, welcome to Atherbeth. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, we are we're just so jazzed that you're here. We have been really nervous about this for a while. <laughs> I think I can speak for both Jude and I that we've been like eating our nails and uh, but it's just so wonderful to have you here and it's great to be able to see you as well. So thank you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So um, I am a I started as a Tolkien fan to fan fiction writer to Tolkien Scholar. Um, I own the website. I founded and own the website Silmarillion Writers Guild. So that's been a really important part of my fanish experience. Um, unlike a lot of Tolkien fans that get their start with Lord of the Rings, I actually, well, I started reading Lord of the Rings. I don't think anybody starts with the Silmarillion. And now probably like 5 million people will message me and claim that they did. But um, I I really got into as a Tolkien fan with the Silmarillion. <laughs> so um, that's really my passion. And my scholarly work has taken me in the direction of looking at like historical bias in the Silmarillion, 
from the Tolkien study side and looking at Tolkien fan fiction and its communities from the fan study side. So that's a really interesting way of kind of getting into Tolkien. You kind of took a different route than I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Because you start, so you started with Lord of the Rings, you started with the main writings and then dove directly into the Silmarillion? Yes. Well, I actually, I, my origin story with, um, as a Tolkien fan is kind of interesting because the first time I read Tolkien was in fifth grade. Um, I had to read The Hobbit. I was put in an academically talented reading group. And The Hobbit was one of the books Ooh. that we read. And I read it, and it was okay. Um, I was not, like, over the moon about it, I'm going to admit. Um, and then I went to middle school the next year in sixth grade, and we read Fellowship of the Ring in school. And that is where the wheels came off, because I did not like it at all. Um, and looking back now as a middle school <laughs> literacy teacher myself, I think it's kind of not really developmentally appropriate for sixth grade, and that's probably why it was not really my speed. Um, but this led me to claim for the next 10 years or so that I hated Tolkien, which provoked a lot of arguments with my best friend in high school who loved Tolkien. But when I was in college, and I was very firmly a literary snob at this point, um, I'd been trained against the so-called genre <laughs> fiction, um, which of course included especially Tolkien, and this was when Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy started coming out. And I remember sitting in a movie theater with my mm -hmm. husband and seeing the trailer for Fellowship and being like, oh, crap. Like, this actually looks really good and I want to see it. But how in the world am I going to, like, overcome this <laughs> identity of myself as this literary person who wants to go and see, you know, Lord of the Rings in the movies? So... Thankfully for me, my husband wanted to see it, so that gave me cover, because I was just going with him, um, and I didn't have to admit it for myself. And that was that was the point where I fell in love, and I had to, <laughs> you know, fight back. And at, at this point, you know, I've, I've written quite a bit against, you know, that whole, like, snobbery against genre fiction and whatnot, so I've made a complete 180 there. Um, but like I said earlier, you know, I, once I had seen the film, the films, it was like right before Return of the King came out and I was like, I really need to read the books. And so I like blew through the trilogy, um, right before the third movie came out. And then I wanted more, more, more. So I went back to the Hobbit and then I ended up going onto the Silmarillion, which I also hated at first. <laughs> um, but I was so embarrassed at being defeated <laughs> by a <laughs> that I read it a second time. And that's when I fell in love. And at that point was a Tolkien fan. Um, you know, there was no other way. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it involved a lot of eating. Oh, crow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's such a common reaction I hear about the Silmarillion. I feel like a lot of people don't love it till the second time through. Yes. Oh, your high school friend must have been like, so, so like, I told you so, I told you so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'd unfortunately lost touch by that point, but I, I think she probably... I, I, she follows me, like, and my husband, you know, we all went to high school together on social media, and she probably sees, like, when I present at conferences and stuff, and she's probably like, huh, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> because that's I was amazing. quite passionately <laughs> insistent that I hated Tolkien, which was my exact words that I used, which I would never use now against a book, but, you know, right. then, you know, I had the, all the passion of a teenager that I was convinced I knew everything that I loved and hated. Yeah. How did that go from uh, 
loving the Silmarillion to becoming a fan fiction writer in the Tolkien fit community? So at this point, once, once I'd read the Silmarillion and I enjoyed it, then I was out of college and I was working my first job which was an unbelievably boring job where I was largely in an office that was actually located in, old, in an old house. I was a research analyst for a law enforcement agency. Um, and so I worked an eight hour day and I got my work done in about an hour. And so I spent a lot of time <laughs> using Google searches to keep myself from dying of boredom. And I remember one day I searched <laughs> Nerdanel, the wife of Feanor, um, just to see what I could find on her. Give me something to read to for the rest of my day, and I came across there was a fanfiction author named Nerdanel, and so I came across her fanfiction.net profile, and I believe her live journal as well. And so I started reading, and I'm and so I'm reading these stories that I have no idea what they are, and I'm like, is this like extra stuff from Tolkien, or like what is going on here? I, I didn't know what it was, but I knew I liked it. Um, I'd also kind of sort of experimented without realizing even that fan fiction was a thing in writing a fan work. I had started writing a play about the Silmarillion that was like trying to make it humorous because I was trying to get my husband into it because I had no clue about fandom at yes. this point. I had no idea that there were like <laughs> That's hundreds, awesome. thousands of people who would love to talk about this stuff with me. So my solution was if I make this a play and I make it funny, then maybe I can convince him to read it. So I was working on this play when I encountered this concept of fan fiction. And once I figured out what it was after a while, I was like, okay, so this is people writing stories based on the Silmarillion. That's like a freaking brilliant idea. Like, and I, that's how I spent probably the next year at that job is I would come in, I would rush through my work for the day, get it done in about an hour. I'd have about seven hours either with just my boss in the office or completely by myself and maybe handling some calls from officers in the field, but that was about it. And I would just read fan fiction for the rest of the day. Um, and that's what got me started in writing it, too, because so much of my writing, and I would say so much probably of a lot of Tolkien fan fiction writers, is reacting to what we're reading. And, of course, I was a fan of the House of Feanor. They were the people that really interested me the most. I thought they were very psychologically interesting, my bachelor's degrees in psychology. And so mm -hmm. I encountered a comment at one point on a, a poem, actually, on fanfiction.net. And it said, oh, thank you. The poem was anti-Feanorian, which I was okay with. People can have different opinions than me. But there was a comment on the poem. <laughs> and it said, thank you so much. Something along the lines of, thank you so much for writing this poem. I just want you to realize that this poem has made me realize that my first is the true villain in the Silmarillion to which I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, that was just, <laughs> that's, a, that's a spicy take. Well, that's yeah, a hot interesting. take. <laughs> I'm like, did, did you miss the guy named Morgoth? You know, he's kind of an important character too. Um, and there's a whole string of other people that I would maybe put in line before my thirst. You certainly made some regrettable life choices, but I don't think I would categorize as the quote unquote true villain of the Silmarillion. So I had two, I, yeah. the way I saw it is I Who had two options at this choices. point. Um, I did not interact with other people at all. I mean, I had like some accounts with places so that I could read things there, but I did not talk with anybody with about this. So I could either break mm -hmm. my silence and I could, flame the person, you know, write an, an impolite comment to the person who had written this poem, which I was against for reasons of being a decent human, I hope. 
or I could answer there <laughs> that accusation in a story of my own. And that's what I ended up doing. So I ended up writing Another Man's Cage, which is probably my best-known fan fiction work. It's 350,000 words. Um, it was written as a completely personal wow. indulgence. Yeah, it's very long. <laughs> this is how wow. I, this is now how I occupied my days at work. Um, I wrote this novel in about a year, which tells you how much time I had at work. I don't think I worked on it at home at all. Wow. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, amazing. <laughs> so I read, so I wrote this novel, Another Man's Cage, answering this accusation of the Feanorians being the true villains in the Silmarillion, um, trying to look at like the psychological complexity there and everything. Um, and then eventually I did decide to post it. And that was really, and that was when I started the Silmarillion Writers Guild. And that was sort of like, at that point, the slippery slope was inevitable. <laughs> Were you uh, scared when you first posted it or was it like natural? Like, no, it's got to go up here. How did you feel? I was terrified. <laughs> Absolutely oh. terrified. Yeah, it was, t- understandable. Yeah, it was 2005. So the Tolkien yeah. fandom was not a very friendly place at this point, um, especially to me. I was, you know, a rank newcomer. I only read the books. I'd only read Lord of the Rings, like maybe a year and a half before, you know, I'd read the Silmarillion about a year earlier, maybe a little bit more. Um, I mean, I could figure out the dates and give a precise timeline, but I was a new fan is my point. And I was coming into a fandom with very veteran, very smart, well-read people who were talking about these texts and were using Quenyan names. And I like had no clue about any of this, you know, so yeah. it was, it was vaguely terrifying. It was very terrifying. I used to, when I started posting Another Man's Cage, or AMC, as I call it. Um, Then I would um, post every Friday one chapter. It was 52 chapters. And I would be be sick to my stomach for the rest of the day. I was convinced at any, like, I was convinced every week that I was going to get the comment saying I was a fraud as a writer, that I had no idea what I was talking about, that I had no business writing and posting, you know, when I was so new myself. Um, That never happened. (laughs) But I was convinced at all times that it would. I actually, you know, met a lot of really nice and supportive people. And thankfully, my, you know, negative interactions with people, including around that story, didn't happen until like years down the road when I developed a much thicker skin. But it was definitely a very intimidating experience. Oh, that's totally understandable. I mean, that's sort of I felt the same way kind of jumping into this podcast because I'm, you know, way less read on this stuff than Jude is. But can you give any like advice to new Tolkien fans? Like can any encouragement to newbies out there? Because I think like with this Amazon show coming out and, you know, Peter Jackson's movies, there's a lot of newbies in the field. What would you tell them about the Tolkien community? Well, I'd probably say first and foremost that in 2019 or whenever the Amazon series comes out and I expect we'll get a new rush of um, fans interested in fan fiction then. Um, The fandom now is totally different than it was in 2005. Uh, There was explicit gatekeeping that was happening in 2005. A lot of the sites and groups, you really had to prove your worth in order to belong there. You know, you had to prove that you were capable of belonging. So there was this very explicit, like, hierarchy of fans and of course veteran fans who had been you know re- they had read the books like you know they've been fans for decades of the books um and they were frightened and resentful 
in a lot of cases, I believe, of this sudden push of um, new fans coming in, and they didn't always know how to react in a way that, you know, they wanted to preserve the kinds of conversations and interactions they wanted to have around a deep reading of the text, and they had people coming in like, what kind of underwear do you think Legolas wears? You know, um, and it was like... (laughs) Inquiring minds want to know. Yes. Okay. I I did not make that up, actually. That's a conversation I remember happening on a mailing list I belonged to. (laughs) But Oh my gosh, I am all about that. Yeah. (laughs) So fandom now is way different. It's um, friendlier in a lot of ways in the fact that gatekeeping doesn't happen. Um, to the explicit extent that it used to. That's not to say that it's all sunshine and roses all of the time. And, you know, I know that there's probably, you know, 50 people right now when they're listening to this that got their start during the Hobbit movies on Tumblr that are penning me an angry email or a private message or whatever saying that I'm totally <laughs> wrong in that, that that is in no way their experience. So I don't mean to, like, downplay some of the negative experiences people have even today, but it is very different. But as far as um, advice, I would say, you know, you just have to, you have to go for it. First of all, you have to find, you know, a supportive, it's good to find a supportive group of people. Um, I was very lucky in that. And really, a lot of the friends and people that I met in my early years um, are really the reason I'm around today, that if my experience had gone differently, if I'd gotten the kinds of comments that I feared I was going to get, saying I was did not have a place writing, I was not a good writer, I was not a Tolkien fan yet, then I might not be here right now. So I think that finding like those supportive groups of people, even if it's just one or two friends, is super important. I think that it, it's possible to find that fairly easily now. Um, and then just going for it. You know, you have to, my husband's a snowboarder and his, the terminology in his community is full send. You have to full send it. You know, you just have to like put your work out there and (laughs) dive into the work of other people, communicate with other people. A lot of newcomers will do like I did and just throw a story up on the internet and then wonder why they don't get feedback or they don't hear from anyone, you know, talk to other people about their work, you know, join some join a discord you know follow some social media of people whose work you like and converse with them and that will open that relationship then um to where they're they're going to be more willing to read your work and give you know feedback and thoughts and help you grow in all aspects both as a writer or a creator of whatever kind of fan works you like um and uh, as a tolkien fan is getting more knowledge about the legendarium that's great advice absolutely actually that you know your point of finding a supportive group maybe some of our listeners don't know that actually dawn created her own supportive group with a really wonderful multi-part mission statement uh that really touches on this dawn can you kind of talk a little bit about the silmarillion writers guild sure so just like i came about tolkien fandom and somewhat unusual way, as you know, a very anti-Tolkien person to suddenly, like, that was all I wanted to read about. Um, I formed the SWG, probably in a way I should not have, which was, I was awake one night, because I had insomnia, and I was laying in bed, and I was like, (laughs) there is no group that is entirely dedicated to fan fiction for the Silmarillion. There actually was. There was one mailing list called Silmfix, but it had largely died. By this point, there was like a mass exodus of people, um, and the moderator of that group had stopped approving new messages. 
so I was like, there really needs to be a group for just Silmarillion fan fiction. And I've been involved in this fandom for less than a year, which logically means I should be the one to start it, right? No, not at all. <laughs> but I did. Yes. So the next day, and this comes back to this boring job I had, I was bored at work, and I was like, this thing I was thinking about last night, I should totally set that up right now. Great idea, right? Um, so I set up a Yahoo Groups mailing list, and I set up a live journal community, and then I looked at what I'd done, and I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, this is a real thing now. It exists in the world. And so I promptly said nothing about it. I had just started posting um, AMC. It was, well, it was, I created it right around the time. I don't know if I had started posting AMC yet or if I started posting that right after I created the SWG. But they were pretty much at the same time. And so, but I didn't say anything about this group I created. I was like, I did like this thing I shouldn't have done. I'm going to pretend it didn't happen. Notice I didn't delete the groups though. So as people started reading my story, then they <laughs> found this group that I had established, the SWG, and um, we, and we started recruiting members at that point. And that was kind of the beginning of the end um, for, well, that was our beginning. Um, so it was about, a, about 14 <laughs> years ago now, it was the end of July, we started recruiting members. I set it up on March 15th, on the Ides of March. <laughs> So, Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I know. There's all kinds of symbolism and like it makes a good story to tell at least. Um, but yeah, so I started recruiting members and it was originally intended as like a writer's workshop conducted over live journal and Yahoo groups. But then somebody was like, hey, we should have a website. And I was like, sure. I don't even know how to do italics and HTML, but why not? I'll learn how to build a website. <laughs> so I did. That's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, now the site exists where it is. Um, and you mentioned our mission statement, and I'm, I'm glad that you're, fam you're familiar with that and that you mentioned that because, you know, my experiences as a new fan coming into a somewhat hostile, very veteran group of fans where there was the, the gatekeeping that I mentioned, and I don't want to mean to imply that everybody was, like, super mean. You know, people were – most people were extremely nice and very welcoming, but it was – definitely a very different vibe than it is now um and a much scarier vibe i think than it is now but because of that then i sort of made my mission in the swg as you know not just for deep tolkien fans veteran tolkien fans but for everybody like we like i tell people you know whether you're working on your fifth book of about tolkien or whether you're you saw the, your first Tolkien film just yesterday, and it's your first exposure ever to his work. People are equally welcome, you know, and their voices equally matter. Um, and that's, you know, very, very important to me and to, you know, the other members of my group and my co-moderators. Yeah, that's, a, that's awesome. Um, you even have a point here, you know, about service and, the, like, the services that you guys are providing to... Um, your member base, um, you know, user-friendly services and um, giving people a chance to share time and energy and passion. That's, that's really wonderful and very refreshing. And I think like as an, as a newer Tolkien fan, that is so inviting to me. So I really appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Um, well, that's, and there, what a great dovetail into the crux of why we're all here, which is fan fiction. So we're really here today to talk to Dawn about her recently published piece titled Data on Tolkien Fan Fiction, Culture, and Practices. It was published in April of this year, 2019. Uh, and in this piece, Dawn presents the results collected from a survey that was conducted 
between 2014 and 2015 um, all about Tolkien fan fiction. Uh, how do you prefer to refer to this thing? Is it a, do you call it a paper or a data set? It's more than just raw data. You've done some really great analysis on it, but I'm actually not sure what the technical term you prefer to use for it is. I'm fine with paper. Um, that's fine. Paper? Yeah. Sure. All right. Great. Um, can you give us a little backstory on how this thing came about? What prompted you to uh, start doing this survey and what was your sort of your motivation for it? Sure. So it started in, as, as Steph mentioned, in 20, the end of 2014 um, through 2015, ended in November 2015. Um, I was in grad school at the time, working on my master's in humanities, which had my thesis had nothing to do with this, but it did give me access to things like an <laughs> It did give me access to things like an institutional review board that now as an independent scholar, I appreciate much more because it's a lot harder to do this kind of research now that I no longer have an academic affiliation. Um, really, I was just, I was always super interested. Like I mentioned, my bachelor's degrees in psychology. So I've always been really interested in, in people and their behavior um, and social behavior and so on. When I was in college, I was a research assistant for a social psychologist, so I really like that kind of of work, um, even though I did not pursue it in my own education. So I had always just noticed, as somebody who came in new and then was almost apart from Tolkien fandom, because I was Silmarillion, and most people at the time were Lord of the Rings. So there were all of these these groups and communities and various things that I was part of, but I was not fully part of because my interests were so divergent from what most people were into at the time. So I was observing them, mm -hmm. and I had friends from, like, all of these different groups. And in a lot of cases, my friends from these different groups, like, detested or could not stand the people from the other group. Um, and so I noticed that there was a lot of, <laughs> like, cultural difference. Like, I remember one time being on Yahoo Instant Messenger and talking with two people in separate conversations. And one of them was saying about the site, Henneth Anoon's Story Archive, was saying, I really don't understand how people say that they're elitists and they're so, they've been so kind to me and this is where all my friends come from and I don't understand this point of view. And I'm in another chat window with another person that's saying, ugh. All those snobs from the Hedethanoon story archive and their elitism. And so it was just like <laughs> this really, I found really interesting dynamic um, with these different groups and the cult, different cultures that they had. So I was interested to know if I could quantify this. If I were to do a survey um, and collect some data on people's experiences in fandom. And it was more than just the archives. I mean, if you've, I'm sure you've probably looked at the survey questions and they cover a, a vast, you know, vast things. I was interested in a lot of different things, but what really mm -hmm. sparked my interest in studying fandom was just noticing these different cultures and trying to figure out like how they interacted and like why people had the differences that they did and like to what extent do the different rules of the different sites influence the culture or do the people that participate there, influence it. And so that was really the start of it. Um, and just wanting to kind of have those, I'm, I love data and numbers, even though I teach English and social studies. Um, so just <laughs> wanting to have some quantitative, a quantitative picture of what our fandom looked like. 
Yeah, because cool. it is so diverse, as you, as you say. Um, yeah. Yeah, interesting. I discovered your work via Tumblr. Um, you posted an infographic um, a while ago now uh, about how Tolkien fic authors progress from studying the Lord of the Rings and or the movies into studying the Silmarillion and then the histories. Uh, and I, that was fascinating to me, the way that you, the conclusion you drew that the the more complex or the sort of the, the more esoteric the work that someone reads, the the more it predicts further that they will read into Tolkien's studies. Uh, and that was so interesting to me because it so lines up with kind of our mission statement here, which is to sort of shine a light on on the the deeper and weirder corners of, of Tolkien's legendarium. Uh, so it really got me excited to f- see what the rest of your your data uh, showed. So when you published the full data, I knew that, that this was something that uh, we wanted to dig into. And so we were real excited to get you on to talk to you about it. Um, and specifically, the looking at this wider community, I think is really interesting and how they engage into that data, I think is really relevant to our mission statement here, how we, how people engage with Tolkien's works and how they are drawn into uh, the less common, commonly read stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which brings us into our first of uh, the the actual, our first questions about the actual uh, paper that you published um, about the sort of the demographics and the differences between the fandoms. Um, in the in the paper, you you talk about the sort of general demographic breakdown of Tolkien fic. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the general demographic breakdown of Tolkien fic uh, writers and readers? Uh, you draw some really interesting conclusions about that. Okay, so if we start with so I, I looked at gender and age. Um, as demographics, and I'm planning to run the survey again. My idea is that every five years I will run it so that I get a longitudinal picture as well um, of what Interesting. the Tolkien fandom looks like, you know, over time. Um, and then I'm in the process of working on that now with someone who does have a, the academic affiliations needed um, to make that happen with the IRB and everything. So, but this time I looked at just gender cool. and age this time around. Um, and there's in fan studies in general or fandom fan fiction studies, then you always see like the number being thrown around that 90% of fan fiction writers are women. And I would see that like all the time, lots of different places. It was just one of those like, Oh, it's such common knowledge. I don't need to cite it sorts of things. Um, and I was curious if that was actually true. And I found that it, according to my survey data, then it was true. So, 88.5% of survey participants identified as female or used, it was an open response because of um, gender minorities. I wanted people to be able to identify their gender, how they were most comfortable, not putting it on a binary. And so 88.5% used some sort of female identifying word for themselves, like woman or female or F or whatever, um, which is pretty much, that's not, mm-hmm. uh, in, it's a pretty, similar to the 90% that always gets thrown around. Um, there's also, there was also right around the time that I was doing this, the work by someone named Centrum Lumina um, called the AO3 Census, AO3 being Archive of Our Own, which is a large multi-fandom fan fiction archive. And she found the same. Um, I thought I had put her numbers in my little notes here, but 
I think she found 90%. I can pull it up somewhere else um, to see what exactly her number was. But the, the point is, is that there's not a huge um, difference in gender between Tolkien fic fandom and the, it was, yeah, 90%. It was exactly, it was 90.3%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a huge difference there, which I thought was interesting for reasons I'll get into later. Um, age-wise, so I looked at age, like I said, as well. The median age of participants was 24 years old, but the range of participants in Tolkien fic fandom is huge. For my survey, it was ranged from 13 to 74 um, and if wow. we go, yeah, if we go back to Centrum Lumina's data again from the AO3 census, she also, of course, had a range of ages, but the it was much more concentrated in the younger um, age demographics. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I mean, and that's a point you make, right? Is that this the fandom spans like six decades? That's yes. crazy. So she found that twenty three percent of her participants were ages 19 to 21, whereas for my surveys, it was only 16%. So that like, that like late teens, early twenties age band was much lower for Tolkien. As you go further down Mm -hmm. the age bands, then there's much more people that are, are are identifying as being older. So almost a third of my participants were older than the age of 30. So where and it's interesting, even if you just look at her graphs next to mine, that she, I think, cuts off. She says it's like 40 and over is like the last category for her, whereas I had to make my last category 70 and over because I had enough people in, you know, their 50s and 60s who were responding to my survey that I did need to break yeah. down those age bands beyond just 40 plus or 50 plus, That's whichever one she uses. Um, so we're generally older um, yeah. than fandom in general, thick fandom in general. Um, but the, the gender breakdown is, is pretty much the same, which I find, have always found really interesting. Um, just because of our other differences mm-hmm. in so many other ways from other fandoms. You know, I just like totally had this thought and t- stop me if I'm way off base, but I, a lot of older folks that I talk to about Tolkien tell me that they read it in school, um, <clears throat> I didn't read it in school. It was never part of our, uh, any curriculum. And I, I kind of did formative years in Illinois and in California. Uh, I wonder if like, maybe you're getting an older crowd because it was always part of, it, it was like sort of forced to be part of the childhood of people of a certain age group. I don't know. That's just a hot take of mine. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my, one of my co-authors, um, my, uh, co-conspirator in a lot of things. Um, Janet McCullough-John, um, she and I have presented at conferences together before. We've written papers together before. Um, she's really interested in, because she is an older fan, and she's really interested in sort of the early fandom. Um, and she got into um, Tolkien through like the hippie movement and the counterculture movement. It was, she will always describe that she went to Berkeley mm-hmm. for her master's degree and her professors were like totally anti-Tolkien. They were like the same um, philosophy that I was, my university was, where you did not read genre fiction. You know, it was it was mm. the, the classics and the and the literary authors, and that was it. And Tolkien was trash, and you should not read it. But all of her friends were, you know, into the counterculture movement, and they were enticed in by this, you know, this book, um, and they loved it. You know, wow. and she will she will talk about that. Um, That's interesting. As 
like and it's definitely was if i think the the input for a lot of or the entry point for a lot of older fans um there was an ace the publisher ace books um published actually a, a pirated copy of lord of the rings in the united states and that got it out to a wider audience in the u.s and made for a lot of older that was where a lot of older fans got their start huh. wow that's fascinating i had no idea that is so cool oh man <laughs> Apocryphally, that's why Tolkien had such a salty opinion of American uh, fans, yes. is because they were they were buying pirated copies of his books. Yep. Oh no! <laughs> what a tangled web we weave, huh? <laughs> right. Um, can you speak to the difference between writers and readers? I know you you came up with some interesting differences there as well. Sure. So first of all, um, my survey was for anyone who read. Tolkien fan fiction. There were the the one like qualifying question that you had to answer and you had to pass in order to take the survey was, do you read Tolkien based fan fiction or have you ever? And so, it was, <laughs> you know, that was that was the qual that was the sole qualification for my survey. So it is writers and readers. Um, what I found is about sixty one percent also wrote in addition to reading. So there is a a small majority there who also write. Um, if you look at the gender breakdown, there's not a whole lot of significant difference there. There's slightly less women write than read. I don't know that it's statistically significant. I've not run a statistical test on that to see if it's significant. Just my instinct um, is that it's probably not, mm -hmm. but it is a slight difference there um, with women writing a little bit less than they read. Um, which is interesting, was interesting to me when I initially did this, because, you know, you always hear that fan fiction is the women's genre, you know, and in this case, it was, you know, mm -hmm. slightly less writers there than um, I expected. But it wasn't, I don't believe, yeah. significant difference. Um, as far as age, writers are slightly older. Um, the, medi the median age was 25 for authors versus 22 for people who were just readers. Um, as participants age, they become more likely to become authors. So if you look at, like, the age band 19 and under, 49%, so just about half of participants were writers as well as readers. When you go up to the 60 to 64 age band, that jumps all the way up to 85%. So at that point, you have, you know, more than four oh, out of five and... of your huh. readers are also writers um, by that age. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how to explain it, if it's a confidence thing or yeah. if it's a experience thing. You know, you pretty much probably by the time you're 60 or 65 know if you like writing. You know, whereas a, as a teenager or a young adult, then you might still be feeling that out, figuring if that's part of your identity and something you want to do. Yeah. Uh, most people do start writing in their teens to early 20s, according to survey data. So that's like kind of yeah. the sweet spot, but it's still, you know, cool. older fans are far, far, far more likely to be writers. Yeah, that's really interesting that, you know, your whole point of that really harkens back to your earlier point of how you got started, which you said that you were reacting uh, to what you read and what a great, like, I can't, the data like perfectly supports that. Right? Writers are uh, also readers as well. That's great. It's really interesting. Right. When we asked you about this question uh, in our sort of 
uh, communications before the interview, you pointed out that the demographic differences uh, are less interesting than the broader differences between uh, the Tolkien fic community and the broader uh, fanfic community. Uh, Could we talk a little bit about that as well? Sure. So I do want to preface it by saying I myself am mono fandom, which means that my sole fandom is Tolkien. So I sometimes get myself in trouble as I foray into academic (laughs) waters because I will, you know, draw comparisons with other fandoms of which I am not part. And I get my hands smacked a lot for that. Um, So these are just sort of broader (laughs) observations I've made through like multi-fandom spaces, um, comparing, you know, data from my survey with, you know, other um, research that's coming out. I I have actually like tried to, you know, I've reached out to fans and other fandoms to learn more about them, um, those that I think are most easy to compare. But I think that one Mm. major difference, it kind of touches on demographics again, is just like how long people tend to participate in this fandom. Like once they get in and this harkens back to the infographic you liked too, Jude, that once people are in, then they're in. Like, (laughs) Yeah, I remember this this statistic from the survey. I thought it was fascinating uh, as well, how long they engage once they start writing and reading. Yes, so the median... Yeah, you can't get out. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The median length of participation was for, for authors... Um, I didn't ask for for readers like how I didn't ask how long have you been reading Tolkien fanfic, but I asked authors how long have you been writing, and the median was four years, um, which I find interesting because if you look if you spend time in multi fandom spaces like Tumblr, then and I'm gonna borrow of term that my again my my co-conspirator co-author however you want to identify her janet uses and when she says a lot of other fandoms are flash fire fandoms you know people get really really intensely Mm. into them and then six months later there's like nothing um or people like hop between multiple fandoms and that's how they participate or they participate in lots of fandoms Mm -hmm. Tolkien fans, once you, like, and there is that to a degree, you know, if you look at my survey, it was given at the height of the Hobbit films, you know, so there was a lot of new blood in the fandom, and there were people who had only been involved for six months or a year, you know, that were very new, and I don't know that they're necessarily still participating now, but as a general rule, like, once you reach a certain point, then you're, like I said, you're in. And people tend to stick with it, and they tend to really intensify the kinds of reading and studying that they're doing the longer that they're in. Um, so there's not a whole lot of fandom hopping there. Um, I think it's 60% are monofandom. I can find that exact number. I didn't write it down in my notes, but I know I have it um, readily available. So in general, so only 13% of authors in the AO3 census were multi-fandom. In comparison, okay, I was way off with 60%. I'm glad I looked that up. Um, 24% of Tolkien fic authors were mono-fandom. So you have about one in four that don't participate in other fandoms at all. Um, and then more than half, so like 53%, would identify Tolkien as their primary fandom. So you have like a lot of commitment there that I don't know is necessarily the case if you were to like just pick a fandom at random and ask a person like is this your mm-hmm. only fandom i think most people would say no and if you were to say this is your primary fandom again most people would say no that they don't view it in that way um interesting yes so historically 
um, going back like to when I first started and everything, Tolkien fic fandom has tended to be a little more isolated from other fandoms. That has changed a lot since the Hobbit movies came out and the rise of Tumblr, which I'll some of your other questions later on, I will talk more about that. Um, but there didn't tend to be, like, people, because Tolkien fic fandom, and I have a feeling if you'd asked people in 2010 or 2005, even more of them would be mono fandom than one out of four. I think you would have actually, there may have been a point where a majority would have said yes. And so because of that, then, the Tolkien fic fandom tended to isolate itself. There was not a whole lot of interaction in multi-fandom spaces until the Hobbit movies and Tumblr. Um, so spaces like meta-fandom that existed for discussing fan studies and fandoms overall. Mm -hmm. You didn't see a whole lot of participation in those kinds of spaces by Tolkien fic fans. Um, they tended to keep to themselves. We had a lot, a lot of communities in the early 2000s that were like strictly Tolkien, and that's where we tended to hang. Um, perhaps because of that, we, we'll talk later about the importance of canon and author's authority is a lot higher, I feel like, in Tolkien fic fandom than it tends to be in other fandoms, um, with some exceptions. But generally, your big fandoms with media components, author's authority is not as important as it is to us. Um, historically, there's been less of an emphasis on shipping or, you know, pairing certain characters together romantically or sexually, and there's been less of an emphasis on social justice. Again, I feel like this is changing. Um, but just historically, and even now, I don't think that, you know, we're still quite to the point where fandom as a whole is. And, of course, finally would be the media influence. I feel like um, Tolkien fic fandom has responded to having media um, inputs, like the Peter Jackson movies, the upcoming Amazon, mm -hmm. of course, remains to be seen, but I feel like we've responded differently than other fandoms that are similar, Sherlockian being probably the closest comparison of a really old, very canon-oriented fandom that had, like, a massively popular media adaptation come out, and their response has been totally different from the response to, um, the, of Tolkien fans to the, to the, um, media influence there. Yeah. Uh, that connects to the next question. Uh, the Peter Jackson movies had a really interesting effect on the fandom. Um, looking at the data, there was some interesting spikes of incoming fans um, into the community. Uh, did you see any other interesting, any other notable effects uh, on the community from those movies? Or was just the influx of fans kind of the, the primary one? So it definitely served as an initiation point, um, as you note from that data that shows the very clear spikes. Um, there was a survey item that asked, well, it didn't ask. It, they, most of the time they were statements on like a Likert scale where people could choose between strongly agree, agree, disagree, strongly disagree, or no opinion, not sure. So when mm -hmm. I say people agree, I mean that they chose either strongly agree or agree. Um, and there was a, a statement there in that survey that asked, Peter Jackson's films have encouraged me to write fan fiction, and 72% of authors agreed with that. So they definitely hmm. pushed people into not just becoming Tolkien fans, but specifically writing fan fiction. As sources, and this is where, when, when, I was, when I'm talking about, you know, the Sherlockian fandom, and, and hopefully I won't get my hands slapped too badly by Sherlockian and Sherlock fans um, here, 
that I think it's really <laughs> different because it tends to be an initiation point and then the influence like really drops off in a way that I find super interesting compared to looking at other mixed book media fandoms. Um, so 60% mm -hmm. of survey respondents use the Lord of the Rings films as a source for their fan fiction, and 51% use the Hobbit films as a source for their fan fiction. However, the number who used just the Lord of the Rings or just the Hobbit films, just used no books, but only films, was, I believe it was a grand total of four people out of 1,052. It was less than a half of a percent. Wow. In oh. any case. <laughs> so, That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> so what you see is like these films, it's like, it was my trajectory. You know, it was, it's me too. I, I feel like I am in a lot of ways, like the stereotype fan that got involved with fan fiction because of the movies in some roundabout way, and that the movies pulled me into the fandom I discovered fan fiction, and I think this is true for a lot of people. And, you know, because of my interest in Middle Earth and then my growing interest in fan fiction, dove headfirst into the books and really didn't look back too much at that point to the films, which I still very much enjoy. But they don't really form a basis for what I view as my fanish identity. And I think that that's true for a lot of people. Um, now, The Hobbit, I think, was interesting because, as I alluded to earlier, it really led to cross-pollination with other fandoms. Because Tolkien fandom really started using Tumblr um, intensely in around 2012. Of course, that's the same year that the Hobbit films started coming out. And so you have like this wave of, you have not only this brand new platform, which... Like I said before, Tolkien fans tended to keep to themselves. They were not big on adopting new technology. Like, it was a source of frustration <laughs> to me as someone who loves new technology. You know, going back to like, yes, why don't you learn how to make a website so that I could build an archive for my group? Um, I loved new technology and could not usually get new get other fans to buy into it. Um, but people did buy into Tumblr. And because the Hobbit movies were coming out at the same time, you had all these people that had gone to the movie and had the same reaction that I did when I sat in that theater at Fellowship and said, wow, this is super cool. I want to learn more about this, you know, and getting involved with the fandom, but getting involved on Tumblr. So they were not entering Tolkien fandom through like our communities that we had long established. So our archives, our mailing lists, our journal communities, which were like the major ways people interacted. They were coming in on Tumblr. And so this caused a lot of cross-pollination, I feel like, with other fandoms. So other fandom cultures were really making an impression on Tolkien fic fandom at this point, as they had been completely unable to do uh. up to that point. You know, okay. That's in, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, like interest in social yeah. justice, which I know later on, you know, you said that you've been interested in that. And I think a lot of that came from that, like, coincidence of Tumblr yeah. and The Hobbit coming together like that. That's really, that's really interesting. The not coming in through an existing platform, but coming in through a, a new, a, a non pre existing community, this, this Tumblr. And that's fascinating. That's really cool. Yeah. It's also, it's, you know, Tumblr, it, it can 
be somewhat like I th- I'm thinking that in the old days of the, so when Lord hmm. of the Rings came out, you had to go and search for those communities, right? You had to find those newsletters and find those groups. But Tumblr is a little bit passive. Like you can just sit there and scroll and find great artists and all kinds of interesting things and go down the rabbit hole really easily with Tumblr, I think. And uh, and so maybe that's led that that could be another reason that's led people there. Who knows? Yeah. That's fast. It's great. really interesting, yeah. though. Huh. And I think, too, because yeah. you see what you're follow, what the people you're following, they're posting on their Tumblrs. Yeah. And so, like, I feel like I've learned more about other fandoms just by being on Tumblr. And I'm not a huge Tumblr user um, just because the people I follow will, mm-hmm. you know, hop to a new fandom. And all of a sudden I'm seeing a lot of things about Marvel or I'm seeing a lot of things about Sherlock or, you know, these other fandoms. And I think that that increases people's curiosity, too. Like, oh, what's this? What's this Hobbit thing? You know, this, uh, you know, yeah. dwarf guy is kind of cute, you know, so maybe I'll go check this out kind of thing. Um, and of course, people who were <laughs> participating in exactly. fandom through Tumblr, you know, and were used to doing fandom in the way that other fandoms did with the emphasis on social justice and shipping and things like that. And now, OK, well, I'm going to continue doing fandom on Tumblr how I always have, but I'm going to do it now with the Hobbit. And so now you have these so you have these you know other fandom practices and cultures coming into tolkien fandom because that's how that was the entry point for people that's how they were getting involved yeah wow that's really cool that is really cool don do you think then when you when you uh reissue this survey are you going to add any section about social media because i think if i remember correctly there wasn't a social media section or anything on the old one right on the current one. Well, I did. I did ask on the on the 2015 one. Um, there was a ginormous checklist of check off all the places where you read Tolkien fan fiction and check off all the places where right. you post. And so, if there were like social media sites where people were using, um, Tumblr was on there as a result. I think it's like 32. I just looked at this number. 32 percent of survey participants were Tumblr users okay. also. I can look that up and before I was so off with that 60%. I don't want to say it with um, <laughs> without looking it up. But, um, yeah, so the, that will definitely continue on there. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to add items, you know, based on, because this survey, of course, opened up all yeah. sorts of questions for me. And I'm oh, a lot, yeah. when, I, when I issued it, I was not really, like, I would have never called myself a fan studies scholar. I'm, like nervous about calling myself that now um but i you know have a lot more cred than i did five years ago when i came up with this so i feel like that's opened a lot of you know and having conversations with people who are much more bona fide scholars than me in this um has opened up like curiosity around some of that as well so let me just real quick see where um what the number was for tumblr so that i can correct that 32 percent if i was indeed wrong 36 percent i was much closer that time wow <laughs> so 36 yeah. percent even higher authors, that's amazing yeah we're tumblr users as well so it wasn't a huge amount but interesting yeah yeah still significant though yeah especially yeah. considering how sort of new to the fandom tumblr was at the time and i mean it was only mm-hmm. like two three yeah. years old for tolkien fandom at that point true yeah one of I think that's interesting. You're talking about scholarship. Um, that's one of the sort of the other major pieces that I wanted to talk about was um, the fa- the Tolkien fic community's uh, relationship with scholarship. 
um, the way that that for us at uh, for this for our podcast, um, I'm very much in the scholarship community, uh, and one of the things we try and do is show off the parts of the Tolkien legendarium and body of work that scholarship engages with that a lot of casual fans don't always see. And I think your uh, your paper really shows that the Tolkien fit community engages with that material in really interesting ways. The kind of the principal point that you make is that, if I'm reading it right, uh, is that the Tolkien fic makes community members consume more of Tolkien's legendarium the longer they're in it and engage with it in more scholarly ways. Would you say that's kind of an accurate summary of what you found? Absolutely. I thought that was fascinating. What do you think it is about Tolkien, about the Tolkien fic community that makes this the case? So I think part of it is the fandom culture itself and part of it is the canon itself, the material, the text that we're working with. Um, they're vast and it's possible to dive in really, really deep, really, really quick into that world. Even Lord of the Rings, you figure just the depth in this, like what's considered sort of the entry point book for a Tolkien fandom. Um, you can dive in to that world even without touching the Silmarillion and those related works really deep. Um, there's also the fandom culture, I think, really prizes and encourages knowledge of the canon in a way that's not always true of fan cultures, um, and especially fan fiction or fan works cultures, where there's far less concern with canon. Um, but the Tolkien mm -hmm. community really values that, really respects um, knowing and wanting to not even being, I think that, you know, we've had that shift where, you know, you don't have to be a scholar or an expert anymore in order to speak. But, you know, the understanding is, is that people will be curious and will want to learn more and will want to always improve and do better and, and move on to the next thing. And that's very valued, I think, in the culture. And so that pushes, you know, you have that social mm -hmm. motivation at that point, too, of people, in addition to just the fact that the Legendarium itself is fascinating. And if you're interested in Tolkien's world, and all of a sudden you find out that you have these 12 plus volumes of more, 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 you know, beyond the Silmarillion, you know, it's hard for a lot of people to resist not wanting yeah. to dive in where they're interested. Um, like I remember the first one I bought was unfinished beyond the Silmarillion was unfinished tales because I was really interested in the Nazgul and there was a whole essay on the Nazgul in there. And then my <laughs> next one was history of middle earth volume 12, because it had the shibboleth of Feanor and I was really interested in the Feanorians. So I think it's a mixture of the text and the culture that really pushes people to indulge that curiosity. You mentioned earlier the, the, you thought the, gatekeeping and the sort of general saltiness of the Tolkien fit community has toned down a lot, uh, in the last, over the years, uh, since the, the movies came out. Um, do you see that being true in the, the, the reception to how people relate to the scholarly stuff? Are people more receptive to people, to people that are not as scholarly read, or is there still sort of a divide between people who are being very scholarly and people who are being more transformative. So I really hang out a lot on the SWG, of course, and the more transformative, but I do have a foot in the pool of um, Tolkien scholarship. I present at conferences a couple times a year. 
um, and publish, well, I published one peer-reviewed paper and, you know, have, I'm working on another one right now. So I do have a foot in that pool. Mm-hmm. I have found, um, through my interactions with people in that context, now I'm not necessarily, you know, hanging out on the internet with, um, you know, people who are just in it for the scholarship. But I have found Tolkien scholars at the conferences I attend and everything to be, like, some of the most friendly and welcoming people that I've met. Um, You know, academics who have welcomed my work. You know, at the end of the day, I have a master's degree, but I'm not an academic. Um, I'm a middle school teacher, (laughs) you know. And going back to that whole, you know, full send, you know, I just reached the point where I was like, I have stuff I want to say. I'm just going to put myself out there. And what's the worst that can happen? Someone's mean to me. No one has ever been mean to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they've cool. actually been super kind. That's cool. Super welcoming, really encouraging. I feel like the, I, I presented this year at the pop culture association conference in Washington, DC. And there was, as we wrapped up the Tolkien studies, um, track there, there was a lot of discussion around the fact of welcoming in, independent scholars and welcoming in fan voices. Um, Michael Drought, who of course is, you know, one of the, with a capital Mm -hmm. T, Tolkien scholars, you know, wrote a really great blog post, basically, you know, say, basically saying, you know, cut it out with the hierarchical stuff because a lot of these fans know a lot more than a lot of people that have academic backgrounds do. And, I, I felt That's like cool. that. I have felt like that attitude has been pretty prevalent in the spaces that I've been a part of. I've definitely seen my experience has been very similar. I think um, I've seen that the academic and the scholarly circles that I'm aware of have been super open to that stuff. But I, I, I also have a sort of a historical view back. Uh, when you do the, when you do those sort of studies, you get looks back into how the fan communities have evolved over time. And you, you can see how the original fan communities were very, very rigid and, um, trying to think how to be polite about it. Um, uh, snarky, I guess, about the scholarly aspects. Um, I'm thinking specifically, especially like the language communities, um, we're very, very particular about what was and wasn't acceptable. And we're very tight about how that, what was considered like the canon studies and what was considered like the non-canon studies and stuff like that. Uh, But I've seen that changing a lot over, over time. That's, that's very encouraging that it is changing and becoming more open. And I mean, as, as kind of an outsider, it really seems to me that all of these communities, you know, like the Silmarillion writers guild um and other groups kind of just opening up their arms and letting people in i think that's the start of it and it's nice to see it also continuing to the scholarly groups as well yeah no i think it's important especially with more more fans coming in um i think it's important to embrace those people uh and there's sure to be more um and it, it's another interesting point that you raise is the analytic skills that they develop, um, which I found super interesting. Um, you asked the question, do you find, do you think that reading fan fiction has helped you develop the skills associated with like the scholarly side of fandom? And I thought that was really interesting that they found that they self-identified that they, that reading fan fiction had 
help them become like more critical readers. Yes. Do you think sure. that it's sort of leading people to do more research as they start to get into this a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Um, I actually have a survey item that pretty much speaks to exactly that, which is when I asked the authors, fan fiction has encouraged me to do more research on Tolkien's world than I would have done otherwise. 87% agreed. And when I asked the readers, fan fiction has encouraged me to do more research on Tolkien's world than I would have done otherwise. 87% agreed. The same is for the authors. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that's yeah, a that's, huge majority. That's really there. cool that they, yeah. And that's, that's really interesting to me. And I think, yeah, that's the kind of thing that, that's really fascinating to me and really encouraging to me um, for what we do here, that exposing people to this stuff uh, ho hopefully will encourage them to go into that source material and do do more reading and research themselves. Uh, so I think that's really cool. I think it will. Yeah, maybe even start writing fan fiction. Who knows? Maybe I will. <laughs> yeah. There's a very good chance that I'm going to do that. That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, the last area of the survey uh, that we really wanted to touch on was uh, author authority. Um, sort of broadly, there's some uh, a couple of things tied into author authority that uh, I, I found really fascinating. Um, I think it's tied to the scholarly approach as well. Um, because of this community has had such a reverence for Tolkien and for that scholarly approach, um, it seems like that's had a an effect on how the community approaches, how transformative it can be. Um, we've talked a little bit about how that's changing, but you asked some questions about how willing people were to challenge Tolkien's point of view on these things. And I think the thing I found most interesting was depending on how you phrased the question, if you made it, if you made it explicit that they were challenging Tolkien's views on things people were real cagey about answering yes i i will do that but if you made it implicit in the question they were much more likely to say yes i will do that were those intentional did you set out to to set the questions up like that or were you just asking kind of different questions and you ended up with this really interesting uh dichotomy or this really sort of interesting set of data. Yeah, it was totally a happy accident to borrow, borrow your language in the notes. I did not intend that. <laughs> and I didn't even really start to notice it until I was doing an article for a special edition of the Journal of Tolkien Research called Authorizing Tolkien and starting to look at it through that, the survey through that lens. And that was when all of these, you know, all of these observations around authority started to jump out at me. And I started to notice some really cool um, patterns and trends in there. That's fascinating. Um, can you speak to the, the, the different kinds of respect for authority that these questions reveal, the way that the, the Tolkien fit community seems very hesitant to challenge Tolkien sure. uh, and his authority over the works? Yes. So just to start off for people that don't have as much of a fan studies background, the assumption in fan studies is generally that fan works creators are, are comfortable disregarding or challenging um, the authority of the original creator over that created world. So in some communities, it would be absolutely zero problem to say pair together two characters that, you know, never even meet in the story. And nobody would look askance at that. Every, and that would be fine. Or to change a detail from the canon because, you know, it doesn't match what the fan fiction writer or fan works creator wants to see it as. And that nobody would have a problem with that whatsoever. 
Um, this isn't as apparent in the Tolkien fic community. And again, it's changing in some ways, but then there's also evidence that it's, it's not changing. Um, keeping in mind that this survey is from 2015, so four years is a fairly long time. Um, but it, there is definitely evidence that in some ways Tolkien fans are still very respectful of that authority. So I looked at it in a couple of different ways. Um, I have three questions that really, or three survey items that really touch on authority. And they go from, like, very strongly authoritative to, oh, uh, well, you know, the authority piece is there, but it's it's much softer. Um, the strongest one was, it is important to me to write stories that I think Tolkien would have approved of. 15% um, of authors agreed with that. The second one was, it is important to keep my stories consistent with Tolkien's moral beliefs. So 22% agreed with that. And then the softest one was, when writing fan fiction... It is important to me to stick to the facts that Tolkien gave in his books, and 50% agreed with that one. Um, what is interest? What what I've noticed is interesting with um, looking at these authority questions is one the cultural aspect that because I looked at these things broken down by where on what sites and groups and communities people were participating in and what views they had. Um, that varied widely depending on where they participated. So if you're a Tumblr participant, you're an SWG participant, or you participate on Library of Moria, you might be have three very different responses from those three groups. Um, so that's one thing. So this is not like a cross. It's not like a blanket statement for all of Tol the Tolkien fanfiction mm -hmm. community. Um, there's pockets that... There's communities where authority his authority is very much respected, and then there are communities that are like, no, the heck with that. Um, but <laughs> what you what what you were remarking on Jude about the um, cha how changing the language somewhat in some of my survey items, the more that it seemed like you were challenging Tolkien's authority, then people tended to back away from that and agree less. If that language was not present, then people agreed more with that. Um, even when what was being described was really very much the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm a teacher, I'm a literacy teacher, and so I would define, you know, the, the literacy behavior in the one item as pretty much the same as the literacy behavior in the other. You know, the kinds of interpretation and evaluation that you're asking a reader mm -hmm. to do. Um, but people were really hesitant once you started saying, I like to write fan fiction to criticize Tolkien's, wor Tolkien's world. They were like, whoa, no, I can't do that. <laughs> well, <laughs> slow, slow your roll, no way. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so if I say, so to give an example, um, there were two questions, that, two survey items that asked about when people are willing to alter the canon in their fan fiction. When are you willing to change the details in Tolkien's world? You know, that is very much in... You know, people who respect the authority of the original creator would say you have to be hands-off with that. You know, that's what you have to work with. That's your raw material. And so you cannot change the canon. People who are less respectful of that would say, well, you know, my experiences say, you know, for example, Eowyn, you know, when she, after she kills the Witch King and she gets together with Faramir and she decides to give up all of her martial ambitions up to that point, um... You know, there's a lot of women who would say that's really not a very legitimate response for for a, for a woman. Um, so I'm going to rewrite the story, assuming that that was wrong because Tolkien wasn't a woman and he didn't know. 
and I am, and I do know, so my experience counts for more there. So, if I ask people, writing fan fiction lets me fix parts of the story that I think Tolkien did wrong, and notice the words fix and wrong there, <laughs> 41% mm, agree. Yeah. If I said writing fan fiction lets me tell hmm. the story how I wish it had been told, notice a much softer wish in there, 57% agreed. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a that's a big difference. Gosh, ooh, you're like a wordsmith. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I see those. I see what you did there. I'm cool. I'm hip. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting to me. Um, it really to me, that really emphasizes how how much respect, uh, even maybe even respect isn't the right word, but how much deference the community pays to the, the canon. And I think the role that sort of the scholarly side of the community uh has in in tolkien's uh fandom and i think that's part of why the the possibly why the fan fiction community is a little bit hesitant to openly challenge uh tolkien's views on stuff like that well can i ask don were you surprised by the results from the respondents on those questions? Like, did you, did you anticipate those answers that they, that deference there? I really wasn't. And that's been like one of the cool things about this survey is like I said, when I was talking about why I was interested in doing it in the first place was because I had made observations about the community I was a part of um, that were very qualitative and kind of very personal and, and a lot of times I found that those observations are being backed up by the data. And so I was definitely seeing, you know, I had always seen that deference, you know, to Tolkien's authority just in how, you know, people communicate with each other um, in the various groups that I belong to, you know, where people would say, well, to talk about the issue of Slash, for example, which is a story that's written where two same-sex characters are paired together who are not romantically or sexually, who are not in the books, which of course is, you know, there are no, some people would argue that it's, you know, there's a lot of subtext for certain groups of, for certain pairs of characters, but there are no LGBTQ plus <laughs> characters in Tolkien's world. So anybody that's, you know, any same sex pairings then become slash. And you would hear like around the conversation of, well, is it okay to write slash fic? Well, Tolkien would not have wanted you know, Mithras and Fingon to be paired together. You know, so you would hear people, you know, make the argument about a specific type of story or pairing or genre or whatever using this, coming back to this authority, leaning really heavily on this idea of this authority of not even in the, within the morals of Tolkien's world, but within his personal values and morals. Saying, well, he was a devout Catholic. He clearly would not have wanted mm -hmm. two of his biggest heroes to be gay. You know, you'd hear people say stuff like that. You know, it wasn't even like they were pulling on the morality mm. of Middle Earth and saying, well, you know, in Middle Earth, this would have been frowned upon. Or, you know, Tolkien clearly says that, you know, this is not how things worked, but they were coming back to his personal authority in that. And you'd hear people say that a lot. Um, you don't hear it as much now, at least not in the places where, but that could be the places where I hang out, too. <laughs> True. I think some people that definitely sense. feel yeah, that way. Absolutely. Still. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, that is an interesting uh, sort of bridge to uh, the last piece I wanted to talk about here. Um, you, We've talked a little bit about the social justice lens and how you, we've seen a little more, the Tolkien fit community has been a little less uh, 
aggressive in pursuing a social justice um, agenda within within it, um, both from an analytical and sort of a reparative angle. Um, I'm really interested in the subject. The, to- the scholarly community has begun taking this up much more aggressively in recent years, which I think is really great. Uh, and I've, I'm not deeply read on it, but the pieces that I have read, I think, are really interesting in the way that they're re-examining Tolkien from a feminist and from a LGBTQ plus angle, looking at these themes and these subjects much more critically uh, and reparatively. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on the survey's results with regards to the Tolkien fit community, though, whether, how they're approaching social justice and how it's changing uh, over time. Sure. So historically, it has definitely not been a concern of the Tolkien fan fiction community. Like when I entered fandom back in 2004, 2005, then you had very little interest or concern. Like it was almost sometimes if you brought up for example, a feminist reading or a suggestion that an aspect of the legendarium was sexist or racist or, um, you know, in some other way, you know, problematic towards a marginalized group, then people would tend to react negatively to that, even idea of that being brought up, even just as a point of discussion to say, to use the example of Eowyn, who I brought up before, you know, to even talk about, like, well, what does that mean for female readers, for young girls and women who are reading Tolkien's works, to see, you know, this strong female character then take this turn, you know, at the end of her trajectory, you know, what does that mean for us? No, 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 we can't, that's, you know, that was not something people wanted to discuss. Right around, I mean, I would peg it right around 2012, that same time with the Hobbit movies and the turn to Tumblr, um, you started to see more, a lot more interest in that. But I think it did precede that a little bit. Like if I look at the survey data for the SWG, which has been around since, well, I established it in 2005, the archive was built in 2007, then we are, a like if you break down my social justice question, um, which I'll talk about in a second, by archive, the SWG is really high up on concern for social justice. So that was present, but it wasn't very strong prior to 2012. Um, I did ask a question about social justice in the survey or an item. It's not really a question. Um, writing fan fiction helps me correct problems with race, gender, and sexuality that I see in Tolkien's books. And 62% agreed with that, um, which was actually a lot higher than I would have expected. I found that fairly surprising. But what's mm. interesting is that a lot of these survey items, I, I broke them down by the experience level of the writers, um, like how long they had been in the fandom. So were they veterans, like they'd been writing for five years or more, or were they new, like only in for you know one mm-hmm. or two years? And I didn't see too much of a difference on the authority items on that, um, that the newer fans were just as willing to respect Tolkien's authority as the older fans were. And when I say newer and older, I mean in terms of the years they've been writing, not their age. Social justice is one area where I saw a really big difference there. Um, So if I just divide, if I make the dividing line between three and four years writing, so three years or less writing, which means newer fans, um, 70% agreed with that statement about social justice. If we go with four or years, four years or more, that number drops to 54%. 
So it seems very much... Mm. Oh, interesting. Yes. It seems very much a phenomenon that is concentrated, like, among newer um, members of the fandom. But it's also, as I hinted at with the SWG thing, it's also very much like a localized culture thing. So you could have a site like... Huh. Um, uh, Archive of Our Own, AO3, for example. Um, there's a... Like a respondents from there, from Tumblr and from the SWG, were the three groups that had the most concern for social justice. Um, there are three fairly mm-hmm. newish communities. Um, the SWG is the oldest on there um, at, from 2005. But then you have some, like Library of Moria, for example, which is a slash archive. So every story there is a same-sex pairing, and you think, oh yeah, these people are definitely going to be very gung-ho about social justice, but they're relatively low in their concern for it. So there's some some surprising results in there as well, and it's really hard to predict, but it does seem like the biggest trend is that newer incoming fans are bringing these ideas in. And so it's kind of paralleling what we're seeing in the scholarly world in a lot of ways as well, with more interest in those subjects. That's great. That's really interesting. Steph, do you want to take yeah, this Yeah, I mean, so we we thought it would be kind of nice to start wrapping up by looking into the future a little bit, and I guess also into the present. And um, we just talked a little bit about Archive of Our Own, and just to remind our listeners that Archive of Archive, sorry, I can't even speak now, Archive of Our Own, our AO3, is a multi-fandom fan fiction archiving website. And it's recently been nominated uh, for a Hugo Award. Um, a Hugo Award, for those who don't know, are literary awards that are given out for science fiction and fantasy works. And I think many people are saying that this is a really huge step in legitimizing these kind of fandoms and and fan fictions. Um, So I wanted to ask you, Dawn, um, with this kind of increase in clout that we're seeing within the fan fiction world, how do you see Tolkien fit kind of evolving in the future? I do see continued, and I say this with some reservations because Tumblr... The Tumblr situation is interesting, which I'll come back to in a second. But I do think that there is going to be more assimilation with general fic fandom. So seeing a growing focus on shipping and on social justice. Um, At the same time, like I said, I say that with reservations because this past December, Tumblr changed their policies around adult content in a way that a lot of fanworks creators, even fanworks creators who were not affected by that policy, found objectionable. And so fandom has been pulling away from Tumblr to some degree. And I do wonder if the next platform that's adopted will be more of the more insular variety, like LiveJournal and the email lists used to be, where you're not getting that cross-fandom, that Mm cross-pollination between fandoms that you do on Tumblr. So, But I do think that that trend is here. I think that there is a lot of fans who are you know, extremely interested and committed to seeing um, social justice concepts being used more widely in Tolkien fan fiction. So I don't see that going away. And I see that strengthening, if anything. Um, of course, the Amazon series is the, you know, big <laughs> looming thing on the horizon. So <laughs> I imagine whenever that comes out, um, in my mind, I sometimes extend that little graph I've made of the year of entry for Tolkien fan fiction um, that Juju talked about before, where you can see like the, the spikes around Lord of the Rings and Hobbit 
trilogies for the films. Um, I imagine in my mind that graph continued, yeah. and then you can see that same spike for Amazon. So I think we will get an influx of fans. Yeah. The question I'm always like super interested in, and a little afraid of, to tell you the truth, is will we be able to continue our tradition, sort of in this fandom of, you know, new fans are brought in by media works without becoming a media fandom, um, remaining a mm. book fandom. So having that sort of balance where, yeah. you know, we pull in people, people are pulled in by these these media texts that they're interested in, but then turn to the books, um, which has not been the case, as I said to earlier, for the Sherlockian fandom, which was in exi- has been in existence longer than Tolkien fan fiction, which itself dates back to the 1950s. And, you know, when the Sherlock BBC series started, you have like a bunch of fans and fan fiction writers and fan works creators that are not at all interested in the works of um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but want just that media product. So I'm interested to see what happens with the Amazon series with that. Um, if that sort of trend that we've seen will continue. Yeah. And I also just see more being, b- sorry. I would say being based in the second age, I, I, I'll be interested to see how much of that drives people into the books to find out more about the second age, because so much of that, it'll be interesting to see how much of the book material they're allowed to use. Cause if they are restricted in how much they're allowed to use, I could definitely see that driving people into the books to get more detail that they aren't allowed to use, but I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I'm really curious to see what, what ends up happening there. Yeah, I'm curious too with the the television show format versus the films. I feel like the films kind of like gave you those three like quick hits, you know, and then you're sort of left on your own to figure things out. Whereas, a, I mean, as we've seen with Game of Thrones that, you know, continued over, you know, also started with a book and continued over how many years and snared in how many people and, you know, kept, but kept that canon... Yeah you know, there, that it was like more of a constant presence in people's lives. And I wonder if that will influence, how that will influence people turning to the books as well. Um, but the last thing I really think yeah. seeing happening with Tolkien fic fandom is I do see us continuing to lose those specific cultures. Um, we've had a tremendous loss of archives and and websites and groups and all over the last several years. Um, a friend of mine Independence 1776 is her handle on, on Tumblr. Um, she maintains a list of Tolkien fic archives, and it seems like every year when she goes through and checks which ones are still available, then there's another one or two that have gone offline, which is sad um, to me <laughs> mm-hmm. as somebody who enjoys yeah, like our fandom cultures. Um, so I see us becoming more homogenous culturally, but again, I think some of that depends on this whole like big question mark box of you know Tumblr and how ultimately we will respond to Tumblr becoming less of an influence. Yeah. Because I feel like Tumblr is one of the reasons why we started to lose those specific cultures, and now that Tumblr is losing its influence in turn, will we become more insulated again, or will we be continuing on these huge multi-fandom platforms? Um, where yeah. the individual cultures matter less. But in any case, I do see a loss of culture in the future. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons that, I mean, one of the many reasons that AO3 exists, right, is to protect smaller um, communities that were, because they were also seeing, you know, multiple different fandoms were seeing their archives closed down, people, you know, can't run them anymore, whatever it is, and you lose all that wonderful source material that's out there. And so they're, one of their missions is to preserve those. Maybe we need a Tolkien one. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, is there a lot of, I, I haven't really spent a lot of time on AO3. Is there a lot of Tolkien material there or not so much? So there was a massive archive called Hennethan Noon Story Archive that was one of the like big, like there was a, a, a boom of archive creation in the early 2000s. And there were several really large archives that were created, and Hennethan Noon was one of them. And it unfortunately had to close several years ago, and thankfully they did agree to import in through the Open Doors program through AO3. Um, so Hennethan Noon's entire archive is available on AO3, which is, which is really, really awesome, because a couple of us had started our own like grassroots rescue project that where we were literally copying stories by hand and putting them into shared oh. um, Google Drive folders, you know, so that we would have at least have the stories um, because the admins of Hennethan Noon were not sure if they were going to go with open doors yet. So we were like, well, we have the time is ticking. We have to do something. So, yeah. Um, as far as, as are you, do you want to know just about like, um, archives that have been abandoned or just Tolkien material in general? Well, just kind of Tolkien material in general, maybe. Yeah, AO3 is is definitely very heavily used by Tolkien fandom. Um, I think AO3 is kind of ironic in a way because, you know, the Organization for Transformative Works, which is the umbrella organization that they're a part of, was really created to preserve fandom cultures and through the Open Doors Project, which I think is a wonderful project. But then the great irony is, is that they created this you know, multi-fandom archives so that there was a non-profit multi-fandom option, kind of an alternative to fanfiction.net, which was, you know, proving itself to be a little bit problematic in lots of ways that I won't get into. But, you know, through AO3 becoming this dominating force, it has also effaced some of those, like, cultures that people are like, well, now that AO3's here, why should I bother? You know, I've, I've literally had people say oh, to me, like, why do you keep the Silmarillion Writers Guild now that there's AO3? And it's like, because culturally we are a different organization than AO3, and we need both. Um, but there's, like, a yeah. lack of understanding in some fans about why smaller groups would even want to exist now that there's AO3. So it's been kind of an interesting, like... You know, I I think I do not think anyone that founded the OTW or o, or AO3 would have wanted that to happen. You know, it's, but it's been kind of an interesting unintended consequence, I think, sometimes of AO3 for um community for fandoms like mine that have lots of separate smaller communities. That's that's fascinating. Cool. Yeah. Um, just to kind of circle back, you know, to your survey, um, you mentioned that you want to. Uh, give this survey again um, in five years, or actually, I guess if it was 2015, we're coming maybe back up on the 2020 date for another survey, but to do it every five years to track the changes. Um, what are you, what, so what are you hoping to do with the data that you collected in this survey, in the 2015 survey? Do you have any future plans of publishing or what's, what's kind of, can you talk a little bit about what's coming next for you? Sure. So I'm definitely interested in continuing to present and publish my work for myself. Um, 
I have lots of opinions and thoughts and theories, so, you know, I want to get those out there, and I really enjoy Good. this kind of work. Yeah. Um, I view my life's work as my work with my students, but this is kind of a way of, you know, continuing to keep my skills fresh in my content area, which is humanities. But I think probably even more important than that, because I am not an academic, is that making this data available for other scholars, which is why I put out the publication earlier this year that I did, you know, I was, ta I was dragging my feet on getting all the survey data together, and then I was accepted to present at the Pop Culture Association conference, and I was like, it would be really cool if I could show up there with actually having all of my survey data done. So that, like, pushed me to get that done and put up on my, and my website built and put up on my website. So really, I hope that, I, I almost feel like it's that, that um, letter to Milton Waldman um, where Tolkien talks about, you know, viewing other minds and hands, you know, having something to do with his work, you know, feeling like he creates something that other people can do something with. And I really think that that's an important goal for how I see it being used in the future, as I would like fandom studies scholars and historians to be able to have free access to this data and be able to pull it up and say, you know, this... I'm using evidence for this point, or I, you know, I'm going to publish around this idea, and just having that available to people. And I think once it becomes longitudinal, it will also, you know, that will also be super valuable for for I hope for scholars to use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Thank you so much for speaking with us today uh, on Athrobeth. We really enjoyed this conversation. It's been really enlightening. Yeah. Thank you so much, Don. This was awesome. Thank you both um, again do you have any me. upcoming like projects or social media or anything that you want to plug or, or please plug your websites for our listeners? So my website is dawnfelagoon.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter and I'm on Tumblr. Um, I admittedly don't post too much to the other two because I'm massively introverted and my job is a massively extroverted <laughs> job. So a lot of times when I get home then my capacity for interaction is not even going to extend to social media. I'm going to keep it a hundred. Um, but <laughs> I put all of my, I put all of my scholarly work or link to all of my scholarly work on my website and do keep those social media accounts there for, you know, promoting those things when they come out um, as well as my fiction when I occasionally get the chance to write a story or two. So those would really be the places to find out more about what I do. Great. Awesome. Well, thank, well, thank you, you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. The road may go ever on and on, but this episode is over. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes as it helps increase our visibility. You can find us on the web at www.podcast.athrobeth.com. You can find the show on Twitter at athrobeth underscore cast. I can be found at Aramidic Jude. Steph can be found at The North Four. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings by Pony Music, courtesy of Pond5. Thanks for listening. <laughs>